John chapter 10, but I'm going to start somewhere else. I want to invite you as we begin our study tonight, the Bible's open in your laps just to uh, settle in and relax. Doug, what was it you said when you came? It's a comforting place. It's a comfort zone. It's a comfort zone. Welcome to the comfort zone. And it is. It is comforting to be in a place with other believers. And it is comforting to come and to worship the Lord. And to be reminded of His great hand who has hold of us and is walking with us and has from day one had a genuine love for His creation, but beyond that, more so for His children, for His sheep. So if you would just close your eyes and listen, I'm going to read that once again very familiar psalm before we get into John 10 tonight. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for His namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. If the 23rd Psalm is the declaration of the Good Shepherd, then the 10th chapter of John is the explanation of the Good Shepherd. And I truly believe, having now read through these and studied them and considered them, that these two should go hand in hand. To read John chapter 10 without reading Psalm 23 is to kind of miss part of the beautiful picture that David paints for us. Now we went through those seven pastures on on Sunday. We fed from the pasture of, of Jacob, speaking of the shepherd in Genesis 49, the pasture of David in Psalm 23, the pasture of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 40, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Micah, Zechariah, all those those seven places from which we hear the declaration of Messiah as shepherd. All culminating in the pastoral teaching of Jesus right here in John chapter 10. And I remind you what we talked about on Sunday, that when Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, he wasn't just painting a parabolic picture. He wasn't just throwing out a a word picture to describe himself. Far more than that, he was saying to the Jewish community surrounding him there, listening to him, he was saying, I am the good shepherd, the good shepherd. I'm the one you've been hearing about for these past 1,500 years. I am the good shepherd. But Jesus doesn't start cold. It's not all of a sudden he starts talking about shepherding. He actually is leading into it from another place. It's where we ended last week. And it's the context from which he begins his teaching. He's warning against Pharisaical blindness. Remember last week, if you'll look back at John chapter 9, verse 39, we'll start there. Jesus said, for judgment, I came into this world 
So that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Not that Jesus came into the world the first time to judge, but He came because judgments must be made about Him. Everybody must make a judgment. you got to decide where you stand with Jesus one way or the other. You can't ride the fence. He doesn't leave us the, that option. And so for judgment, for a judgment to be made on my part, on your part, He came into this world. Well, verse 40 says, Those of the Pharisees who were with Him heard these things and said to Him, We are not blind too, are we? And Jesus said, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say we see, your blindness remains. You see, because the Pharisees claimed insight. We have a direct line to God. We can see very clearly, they claimed, but they were blind to the very light of the world. And as we talked about last week, the light of the world reveals the intentions of the heart. Jesus just standing there. Jesus just present revealed the true intentions of the Pharisees. That's why they wanted to kill Him so badly. Those who did. Those who didn't, like Nicodemus, would follow after Him. Both would make judgments about Him. But this light of the world reveals the the intentions of the heart. And so Jesus calls out the intentions of these blind guides, these Pharisees, who would steal and rob from his sheep pen. And that's where Jesus continues as we start chapter 10, verse 1. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. So still talking to the Pharisees, those Jewish leaders, he describes two different kinds of thievery here. They are thieves and they are robbers. In the Greek, the word thief may sound familiar to you. It's kleptes. It's where we get klepto. Such a klepto. Someone in my house is a klepto when it comes to pins. I can never find pins. We have a pin klepto in the house. A klepto, kleptes in the Greek, is surreptitious thievery. Those pens just go missing. I don't know who's doing it. I suspect it's James Daly, but I can't be certain. I'm kidding. I just saw you out of the corner of my eye. (laughs) People are stealing your pens? It's sneakiness. I've talked with my kids about sneakiness. Not okay. It's kleptase. Surreptitious thievery. But the other word he uses here, he's either a thief, that is he's sneaking in, or he's a robber. Robber is lestase in the Greek, and it's open, violent taking. This is not someone who's sneaking in and pulling something out from under the rug. This is someone who is, this is home invasion robbery. This is someone who knocks on the front door, you open the door, and they come charging in with guns and mallets ready to take you down and clear out your house. And I'm reminded when I read this that the devil works one of two ways. He is a beast of extremes. One of two ways. He is either sly and sudden, or he's subtle and brazen, and he is nothing in between. He's either sneaking around, trying to get in, in through the window, in through the back door, looking for the open door, or he comes bashing in the front. But it's, it's one or the other. It's never kind of a, a middle range. He doesn't really seem to have a whole lot of self-control. 
False teachers are agents of the evil one and function the same way. And that is who I believe Jesus is powerfully describing here as false teachers. The false teachers. They don't enter by the door, but they climb up some other way. They are thieves and robbers. They are kleptos, climbing in the window and furtively working to gain the confidence of the sheep. And Jude describes them... If you will keep your finger there and go all the way to the end of your Bibles just before Revelation, the book of Jude. That one chapter book. And Jude says the following, beginning about verse 4. I mean, we can read the whole thing because it's the whole message of Jude, but let me just read a couple of things out of this. Speaking again of the kleptos, the thieves, those false teachers who would sneak in and begin to work their false teaching among the flock, Jude says, verse 4, certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Down in verse 12, skip down there. These are the men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves. They're hidden reefs. You don't see them. You don't realize what they are up to. They are kleptos. They are clouds without water, carried along by winds. You look up, you see them, you think, well, there's something there, right? There's got to be something there in that cloud. There's nothing there. It's emptiness. They're autumn trees. Beautiful in color, but no fruit. Doubly dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam. (laughs) Wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. Further down, verse 16, Jude continues and says, These are grumblers. (laughs) Finding fault. And, and we have that sometimes in church fellowships. Not this one, but in church fellowships. Sometimes you have that person and they just seem to always be the one who's there when faults are being pointed out. They're always bringing up the negative. They're always grumbling about something. Watch out. They're following after their own lusts. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. Jude says, Oh, but you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ that they were saying to you, in the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lust. Jude is talking about Peter's letter, right? These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. And that's who we're talking about when we hear the word klepto, the kleptase. The thieves. Go back to John chapter 10. Because there are also the robbers. The laestes. And the laestes are the brazen crooks. They're the ones who come crashing in. They brutally steal, kill, and destroy. Acts chapter 20. Paul says the following. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. From among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Well, what's Paul's remedy for that? The Word. The Word, the Word, the Word. If you know the Word, you cannot be deceived. You won't be deceived because you have it to test. you got to be in the Word. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6. 
Paul writes, For among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning, never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Men of depraved mind rejected in regard to the faith. Now, as Jesus is describing these thieves, these robbers, the sneaky ones and the brutal ones all together, He's talking about the false teachers and the sheep pen, at least in this context, is Israel. Those in immediate risk. And Jesus is calling out the Pharisees because they are brutalizing their own people and the people don't realize it. But the teaching will extend, must extend to all those who follow the Good Shepherd, who seek to hear the Good Shepherd's voice, who want to be in the presence of the Good Shepherd. And watch how Jesus goes on to describe this. He says, but he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls out his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them. And the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. I've tested this out on the Gilmore sheep. It works. They don't know me. You know? It's been a while since I've gone through that gate. It's been, how many months have we been in here? But I would go through that gate from my house to the barn and the sheep would be out there. And I've tested this. What's up? And they run away. So clearly, they don't know my voice. That's what it must be. It says, verse 6, This figure of speech Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what those things were which He had been saying to them. I I point out, as I pointed out several weeks ago, this figure of speech is paroimia, not parabole. There are no parables in the Gospel of John. Why is that? Do you remember? Because the signs are the parables. John takes the seven miraculous signs, the seven supernatural signs of Jesus, and presents those as the parabolic teachings of who Jesus is. True miracles that truly happen, but John says, let's just look at these and let them express the divinity of Christ Jesus. And so he's not speaking in terms of a parallel, but a parable here, but he is giving a picture. He is speaking proverbially as he talks about the sheep, right, Israel and those who would follow, the fold, and the under-shepherds. Now, catch this, because I didn't see this at first. We're not talking necessarily about the good shepherd yet. Not yet. Why? Because as Jesus begins to go this direction of, of talking about the sheep and the shepherds, What he talks about here, the focus at the beginning of this figure of speech, is not the shepherds at all, it's the door. The door. Jesus goes on to explain in verse 7, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves, kleptos, and robbers, lestes, But the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. He will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal, kill, kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the door of the sheep, Jesus says first. We're not even to the good shepherd yet. He's talking about thieves, 
He's talking about robbers, and he's also talking about shepherds who enter by the door. I am the door. It is the third I am statement of Jesus. I am the bread of life, he said. I am the light of the world. Now he says, I am the door. The fourth will be the good shepherd. Again, we're not there yet. I am the door. Look back at verse 2 and listen to it that way. Verse 1, actually. He who does not enter by the door, that's me, Jesus would say. Verse 2, he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. Not the shepherd, a shepherd of the sheep. Those who enter by the door. To him the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he puts forth all his own, that is he moves them all out of the sheep pen, then he goes ahead of them. And the sheep follow him because they know his voice. I really believe what Jesus is talking about, at least at this point, is how we as sheep can know and trust our pastors, our leaders, and our teachers. That they are the shepherds. A shepherd, not the shepherd. How can you know? How can you trust? Why would you sit here and listen to me and trust what I have to say? Here's the question you've got to ask. Do they enter by the door? Does the pastor enter by the door? Does the Bible teacher enter by the door? What door? Jesus. Is the teaching leading us to Jesus, through Jesus, for Jesus? Is it about Jesus? That is the most simple way you can be certain of the truth of a teacher. If they're bringing you to Jesus. If they're bringing you to themselves, be careful. It may be one of those kleptos. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3. Paul said, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now you might say, well, dude, just by quoting that verse, then you, I'm confused. Because if no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, well, you just said it when you quoted the verse, so you must not be speaking. But that's not what he's saying. Paul is saying very clearly that if someone claims Jesus as Lord, you know. And they're not claiming Jesus as Lord and following Jesus as Lord and focusing on Jesus as Lord if the Spirit of God is not in them. And likewise, someone who is a lover of Jesus and a follower after Him as the Good Shepherd, the Chief Shepherd, the Great Shepherd, well, that person doesn't have the Spirit of God. Unless they're following, unless they are entering by the door. There is no other way. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No other way into the sheep pen. You try to climb in another way, you're a thief or a robber. But go through the door. Go through Jesus. John said in 1 John 2.22, Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Zechariah 11.17 called him the worthless shepherd. The foolish shepherd. Ultimately, that will be personified in Antichrist, but up until then, John says many Antichrists have come and gone. Many false teachers. Many thieves and robbers. 1 John 4, verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Now, listen, if you leave that in the spirit realm, you can be fooled. 
Because when John says test every spirit, what he's talking about is not only testing spirits out there, but testing spirits in here. Test every heart. Test every spirit. Don't take the teachings of a man or a woman who's proclaiming things to you. Don't take it as truth unless it is supported by truth. Backed up by the truth, who again is Jesus, the door. The shepherd worth following, the under-shepherd worth following, the shepherd with a little s worth following, is he who goes through the door, following after Jesus. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit, John writes, that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist of which you've heard that is coming and is now is already in the world. Second John, verse 7, John said, For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. By the way, the incarnation of Jesus is absolutely critical, vital theology. John would say, if someone rejects the incarnation of Jesus, John would question their Christianity. John would question whether or not they're even saved, because they don't even believe that Jesus came God in flesh, God incarnate. And so the incarnation is absolutely vital in the foundation of our belief, our theology. I would say is vital on one end as the resurrection is on the other end, which we will get to on Sunday. True under-shepherds of the Good Shepherd are honestly like the rest of the sheep. They go in and they go out through the door, Jesus. Paul said in Ephesians 2.18, For through Him we both, that is Jewish and Gentile sheep, through Him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. I am the door, Jesus says. But if Jesus is the door, how can He also be the good shepherd? Jesus, you're mixing your metaphors. And you Bible students know where I'm going with this. Because the good shepherd is the door. And the door is the good shepherd. One of the real surprises on our last trip to Israel. Did I tell you we're going again? We're going a a year from now. And you can sign up for it and be thinking about it. We're going to be getting the brochures post-haste. If you haven't signed up, there's still room. But my favorite place the last time we went, and and it it surprised me. I didn't think it would be. Because I had been there once before. Bethlehem. The first time I've been to Bethlehem, I went to the church in the Nativity, Nativity, and I did not like it. It's a church with bullet holes all over the side of it. Made me a little uncomfortable. The church that when you went down inside of it, it was very dark, it was very dank. The smell of incense was so thick you could hardly breathe. People were kneeling down and kissing a rock, believing that that was the birthplace of Jesus. And I was uncomfortable there and I didn't really like it. But I said, you know, a lot of people want to go to Bethlehem, they want to see Bethlehem. And I was talking to Sandy, our tour guide, and she said, oh, take them to the shepherd's fields. The shepherd's fields? What's that? So we went to the shepherd's fields on the north end of Bethlehem. There's a great valley from Bethlehem that leads down, leading north up over to Jerusalem. You can look across and see the outskirts of Jerusalem from the shepherd's fields. It's a rocky Judean hillside. 
And there on that side of Bethlehem, there are these, these low ceiling caves. And the caves are where all of the sheep were kept. All the animals were housed in Bethlehem when Jesus was born. The caves are far more likely the place where Mary laid Jesus in his first crib, the manger. There in the shepherd's fields. And there in the shepherd's fields, if you see these caves, they're interesting. They're cut into the rocky Judean hillside. And when you look at them, you notice that most of the doorways, they're very low ceilinged and low door. They're, they're high enough that a man could, you know, duck down and walk into. The ceilings are not, very, or the doors are not very wide. They're probably three feet, maybe four feet wide. And what the shepherds would do is bring all the sheep in at the night and then the shepherd or one of the shepherds would lie down across the doorway and become the door of the sheep. And the sheep felt safe. They could wander around in this pinned up area. They could look and there's the shepherd. No one's coming in. Shepherd's right there. None of us were going to dumbly wander out because the shepherd's right there. I am the door of the sheep. And the door provides us security and protection and a sense of of peace. Do you go in and out through Jesus? Is He the beginning and the end of your day? Is He the door? You know, ask yourself the question with each one of these statements He makes, is He the bread of life to you? Is He the light of your world? Is He the door through which you go to find green pastures and quiet waters. I am the door. In verse 10 again he says, Now the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. We know the thief's agenda. It's very simply stated there, the agenda of the master thief, who is the devil and Satan, is to steal and kill and destroy. But we also know the Lord's agenda. What is it that you want, God? What do you want, Jesus? I want you to have life and to have it, he says, more abundantly. Perisos in the Greek, the abundant life. Perisos means beyond measure. The immeasurable life. Exceedingly more than life. That's what I want for you, Jesus says. And Paul writes in Ephesians 3.20, To him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Think about that when you hear Jesus say, I came that you might have life and have it all the more. All the more, abundantly. But you know what? It's even more than all the more that sometimes we think. He didn't just come that you could have the good life. If that were the case, why are there Christians who suffer? If it was just about the good life now, why is it that some don't seem to have? Paul didn't seem to have the good life. Paul was kicked out of every decent town in the Middle East. Paul was stoned and left for dead numerous times. He was shipwrecked. He ended up having his head chopped off in Rome. I mean, come on. That's the abundant life. And Paul would say, oh yeah. Oh yeah, because you see, to live is Christ, to die is gain. And there's that Pastor Rick death wish again. (laughs) To live is Christ. I'm kidding. To live is Christ. 
To live is the abundant life. It is to live more than any other way you can live now. But the abundant life that Jesus wants for you is not now, it is then. In fact, it's now and then. It's the whole package. It's further life. It's beyond life. It's eternal life. And Peter said in 2 Peter 1.11, For in this way, the entrance to the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. And so the abundant life is now. And when life's not going so good now, it is abundantly more than now. It's forever. Jesus is speaking of eternity. And He's the door, right? Through whom we go to reach that abundant life. I am the door of the sheep. We go in and out. We find pasture through Him. Verse 11, now He says, I am the good shepherd. Well, okay, that makes sense now, Lord. You're the door and the shepherd. Well, you're both. That's what the shepherd does. Functions as the door and functions as the good shepherd. He says, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And let me point out again, you might even want to circle this in your Bibles. He does not say, I am a good shepherd. He says, I am the good shepherd. I am the great fulfillment of all of the shepherd prophecies of old. I'm him. In verse 12, he says, He who is a hired hand and is not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming, leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. Now some might say, well, wait a minute. If... You compared on Sunday Antichrist to the hired hand. But here it says the hired hand runs away. So how does that work? He does. He only cares for the sheep as long as he gets something out of them. It'll be about three and a half years. Halfway through the tribulation he turns. And when the sheep say, we are not following you, he flees the sheep. He tries to destroy the sheep. He leaves the sheep to their utter destruction. And as a matter of fact, Antichrist himself is overtaken completely by Satan, who then wants to do in the sheep. Antichrist is nothing more than a hired hand of Satan. And so, when Satan is ready to take him and take over, he does. Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. And I know my own. And my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. We talked about that on Sunday. That is incredible intimacy. That Jesus would say to you right now, here and now, I want to be known by you, and I want you to know me the way I know the Father, and the Father knows me. And if you don't know Jesus that well, take heart. That's His desire. Be encouraged. That's what He wants. That's what He is leading you, leading me toward. I'll confess to you, I don't know Jesus that well. I can't imagine knowing Jesus as well as the Father knows Jesus. And yet, I know that Jesus wants me to know Him that well. And so there's this constant drawing forward, this constant, I guess the word is leading, 
the Good Shepherd is constantly leading me deeper and further into a, a, a grace-filled relationship with Him, to know Him, and I do know Him better now than I knew Him last year. Better now than 11 years ago. Better than 20 years ago, by far. I keep telling my kids right now, my young ones, look, it does. It just gets better and better with Jesus. you got to trust me on this. And if you're struggling right now and you have doubts right now and you don't know all the things that you want to know right now, you will. Give Him time. Follow your shepherd. Allow Him to lead you. And He says, oh, I love this. I have other sheep. I'm other sheep. You're other sheep. We're not the original flock. We're not the chosen sheep. That's Israel, the Jewish people. But I'm other sheep. So I get to be involved. I have other sheep, he says, which are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. And what's so cool about this, let me just kind of speak the obvious here, but he's talking about us. Right in front of our faces. 2,000 years ago, he was talking about you. And me. And I really wonder when he said, I have other sheep, if he didn't think of Debbie. I have other sheep. If he didn't think of Joel, I have other sheep. You know, if he didn't think of Spencer, I have other sheep. And I truly wonder if there weren't times when Jesus in his life, when his mind would perhaps trail off in prayer, and as he was praying, began to see some of us. Don't you miss this. Jesus was aware of you 2,000 years ago. When He died, He died for you 2,000 years ago. I have other sheep. And they will be one flock with one shepherd. Verse 17, For this reason, He says, and I stopped before this on Sunday because this gets a little, really, what? Listen up. For this reason, the Father loves me. Because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. How many times in this teaching does Jesus say, I lay down my life? Three times. I lay down my life. I lay down my life. I lay down my life. He was in the grave three days. And three times He says, I lay down my life as if clarifying that He would be three days dead in the tomb, I lay it down, death. He also says, I take it up again, resurrection. I have the authority to both. And by the way, it was by Christ's authority that He was crucified. Not Rome's. He said to Pilate, you would have no authority unless it had been given to you from above. And He wasn't talking about the Roman Senate. I have authority to lay down my life and to take it up again. But note this, he says, that's why the Father loves me. Because you'll die? What kind of love is that? Because you do what he says? That's why he loves you? Oh, the rebellious man in me, the natural man goes, I don't know how I feel about that. That sounds rather conditional. Oh, God loves you because you'll go and die. What if you don't? Would He still love you then? 
This is something we struggle to understand in the flesh. Let me just put it this way. It is not a conditional, qualified love. God loves him because he's going to die and he'll fulfill his mission. And therefore, because he'll do this thing, God loves him. Conditional love. It is a faithful, compelled love. God loves Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is absolutely in line with the will of the Father. And the Father is aligned with the Son. And he is so proud of his boy. And he so loves Jesus. In the same way Jesus says in John 14, 15, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Now you could read that and say, Oh, conditional love. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you love me, you'll do what I tell you to do. That's how you'll prove it to me. Man, if I said that to my wife, she'd slap me. If you love me, <laughs> fix my dinner. No. Jesus says the absolute proof, the ultimate outworking of your love is that you're going to do what I ask you to do. That's, that's how you're going to know. That's how I know I love Him. Because I do what He asked me to do. And I love doing it. And Jesus loves doing the will of the Father. Jesus came to die because it was the Father's will. And in walking that out, He showed that He is compelled by love. Love for the Father as well as love for you and love for me. And Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5.14, For the love of Christ controls us. I used to hate that. Not the love of Christ, but the word controlled. I like the NIV version, the watered down version, better. The love of Christ compels us. Well, that sounds a little more encouraging. Controls just sounds like, He's got hold of me. Exactly. His love controls me. His love, it's like we were talking about on Sunday. Man, He owns me. He owns my woolly hide. He owns me. I'm a sheep. I belong to Him 100% unequivocally. I am His. And His love for me, it controls what I do. But let me tell you something about His love. It is gentle, gentle, it is tender, it is merciful, it is kind, it is patient. And all of the other verbs and adjectives we could throw in to talk about the love of God, which is unparalleled eternally. And that love controls us. And so Jesus says, that's why the Father loves me. Father loves Son. And listen, if the Father loves the Son because the Son, in perfect, faithful, unqualified agreement with the Father's will, laid down His life for you, what does that say about how He loves you? If God loves the Son because He died for you, how much love does the Father have for you? That is astounding. That is a love unparalleled. And so God, through Jesus and and. But Susie, you prayed it. We were praying out here earlier, and, and it's exactly what she said. It's just the, the expression of God's absolute love in the cross. And through Jesus, God expressed His everlasting, unconditional love for you and for me. And if you ever feel unloved in this world, look at the cross. It is proof positive, not only that Jesus loved you because He was willing to do the Father's will, but that God loved you because it was His will for His own Son to die that you might live. 